Uh, Revelation 8, verse 6 through Revelation 9, verse 21. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked. And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it drew, as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts of the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plants or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of god on their foreheads and they were allowed to torment them for five months but not kill them And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, the people, they will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death, it will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared For battle, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces, they were like human faces. Their hair, like woman's hair. And their teeth, they were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings, it was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like Scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. 
They have his king over them. The angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed, but behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for this hour, this day, this month, this year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, and I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates like the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouth. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails for their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Probably not uh, the passage you ever expected to hear on a Mother's Day. <laughs> All this destruction, demonic locusts, armies sent to kill a third of mankind. Okay, uh, and obviously a long passage. Uh, this is probably the longest passage we're, we're going to bite off in the book of Revelation. So I got a lot to try to cover here. And so I'm going to dive right into it. And my goal this morning is to try to convince you, to show you that actually this is a pretty incredible passage that has a really poignant message that ought to poke and prod at us. And it's delivered in just really dramatic fashion. And so if I've done my job this morning, uh, you'll, you'll have a better sense of what this passage is getting at, what all this apocalyptic imagery is all about. And more importantly, you'll hear the message that Christ has uh, for us to hear this morning. All right? So I'm going to dive right into it here. Uh, as we do, I'm going to give my uh, regular disclaimer, especially to anybody who might be new or visiting with us this morning. We're working our way through the book of Revelation, which is this, it's, it's an incredible book, uh, but it's apocalyptic, which means that it is God's word to us in the form of images and these symbolic pictures, right? So reading and understanding and interpreting the book of Revelation is like listening to God's word or receiving God's word in an art gallery, Right? You're looking at these images and you're looking at these pictures, these graphic apocalyptic pictures, which are very symbolic. And you're taking in God's revelation to you through these pictures. Okay, And I'll just say to you, so my goal this morning 
uh, or my intent this morning is not to go around in this art gallery and look at every single little picture and look at all the brush strokes and try to dive in too deep. But we're going to have to, because it's so big and so long, though Amy told me I can feel free to go long this morning if I want to because she only gets to hear me preach one time a week. So don't worry. We'll get you home for your Mother's Day dinner by 2.30 at the latest. I promise. I love how you're laughing. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, so, but we're gonna, we're gonna just kind of like stand in the art gallery and just kind of look around and just get the big picture theme this morning without diving too deep into all the little brush strokes of these pictures. And there's basically three themes that I want to highlight for you this morning from all this vivid imagery here. One, it's the theme of warning. Okay, two, it's the theme of God's power in his creation. And three, it's this theme of this Tragic sickness that plagues the human heart and the human condition. Okay? Three themes. So let's dive in. Let's talk about this theme of warning. And to get at that, I want to show you some more pictures from my trip over to Israel. I think. Let's see. Am I getting that? No. Uh, hey, there we go. All right. This is, uh, this is the Judean wilderness. Uh, it's right along the Dead Sea. Oh, oh, back it up. There we go. So here's the Judean wilderness, and you can see the Dead Sea right there in the background. The Jordan River comes down from the Sea of Galilee and empties into the Dead Sea. And to uh, the west of the Dead Sea is this Judean wilderness. It's a beautiful area. Uh, you feel like you're somewhere out west. Let's see. Get the next one. Uh, uh, well, you might. might. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here's some fool that decided to go hiking alone in the Judean wilderness. And, and uh, uh, yeah. And, um uh, I think I told you about this. I did not judge the time correctly or the position of the sun and the star in the sky. And I got going and it just sort of slowly, you can go to the next one. <laughs> Are you get yeah, slowly started descending into darkness until, yeah, here's the last, <laughs> anyway. So uh, it was a fun little hiking trip. I didn't make it back to dinner, so don't worry. Uh, oh, ah, man, too far. All right. Uh, what, one other picture though from the Dead Sea. Um, and from the Judean wilderness, I don't know if you can see these caves. I, I told I had a little pointer here. Yeah, I do. Look at that. See these little caves over here? Uh, this is the Qumran section in the uh, Judean wilderness. And quite a few years ago, uh, I forget when it was. Somebody remember the 50s, maybe 60s? Uh, some sheep herders were out here, and one of them decided to throw a rock up into these caves. And when he thought he would hear, you know, banging off the walls in the, in the caves, instead he heard smashing pottery. So he decided to climb up and go into these caves and check out what, what he heard. And uh, lo and behold, as he went in there, he found these uh, ancient pottery, these, these massive clay um, containers. And when he opened them up, that's where they found the, the, the real treasure. The real treasure was that inside these things were 2,000-year-old uh, scrolls. We have some of the oldest scrolls of our Bible were found in complete scrolls of our Bibles. Uh, you know, some of the books of the Bible were found in these caves in Qumran. These are the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So we have significant portions of Isaiah and Deuteronomy and Psalms and other things, uh, which are now, uh, yeah, they're now stored at this uh, museum in Jerusalem, uh, the, the Museum of the, of the Book. I think I have one more picture here that uh, I was, oh, is there one more? Yeah. So apparently, uh, the sound, the tech guys pointed this out to me, that apparently uh, what I didn't notice is whatever these Star Wars secret, um, I forget what they're called there, the desert creatures that were, 
Yeah. Uh, all right. So anyway, that's 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 the humor of our uh, sound and tech crew back there. But anyway, okay. Here's the point: uh, these Dead Sea Scrolls that were found there, right? You have scrolls, ancient scrolls of our Bible, ancient scrolls of a lot of Jewish literature, and you have a lot, of, and you have some scrolls that were written by the Essene community that was living uh, in this Qumran area, and they wrote a lot of scrolls, and they sealed them up in these things. And and one of the scrolls written by the Essene community was this war scroll. Uh, it's one of the most famous scrolls. Uh, not of the of our Bible was found, and and this war scroll, it is a detailed account. It's somewhat apocalyptic, but it's a detailed account of this final climactic battle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. Right? Sons of light probably being people from this Essene community, sons of darkness being evil forces or whatever. And so it's this detailed account of this battle. And what's significant is that as they draw their battle lines and the sons of light go out to face the sons of darkness, just before the battle begins, seven priests emerge from the line, move out to the front, and they've got seven trumpets, and they blow their seven trumpets to signal the start of this great battle, to rouse the people for war and to signal a warning to those on the other side, that this battle is about to go down, and it's not going to go well for you. I want to say that this image of seven figures with seven trumpets blowing their warnings is actually a pretty common image, not only in the Bible, but also extra-biblical literature of the time. Probably this image, both from the war scroll and also from here in the book of Revelation, it probably uh, borrows from actually the book of Joshua in the Old Testament when the Israelites cross that river Jordan, enter into their promised land, and laid siege to the city of Jericho. All right, you remember that story? Don't make me sing the song. <laughs> right? The Israelites laid siege to the city of Jericho. They marched around it for six days. And then on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. And seven priests were given seven trumpets. And on the seventh time, they blew their trumpets, which was the signal to the Israelites that these walls are coming down. And it was a signal to those on the inside that, uh, hey, well, it was a warning to them. Okay, which is what trumpets do. They, they kind of, they're a signal that draw our attention to something, right? And in ancient Israel, you would have trumpet blasts for, I don't know, celebrations and feasts, or you had trumpet blasts that would be calls to worship or sacrifice, or you had trumpet blasts when you would go into battle. Again, it was this blast that would draw your attention to something, signal the beginning of something, and in some occasions would be a warning signal to you. And I think that's what's going on here in our passage today. Part of the reason uh, we think that is that if, if you noticed, and I think Matt, well, I don't know if you intended to highlight it, but it seemed like he was saying the word one-third a lot. Did you pick that up? So in other words, in all this destruction, all these demonic locusts and death that's taking place in this scene, it's still only just a third. Only a third of the trees in the land is burned up. Only a third of the sea creatures and the ships are destroyed. Only a third of the sun and the moon go dark. Only a third of the people die and are stung by the scorpion tails on these. Right? In other words, it's not complete. It's not thorough destruction, which may be yet to come. But it's, in other words, this is like a warning of what is yet to come. Or maybe you notice that there, you know, these locusts are given permission to torment for only a period of time, for only for five months. Right? In other words, it's, it's a heads up, it's a warning. Uh, maybe the, you know, just one more clear example of this would actually be from the book of Joel uh, in your Bible. Uh, Joel's uh, written by the prophet Joel, 
maybe somewhat apocalyptic, maybe not. Uh, but he's writing in chapter 1, after Israel has just suffered uh, a great plague of locusts upon their land as judgment from God. Or, or Joel sees this as judgment from the hand of God on his own people. And so in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, and it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So on he goes. But he also says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments, rend your hearts, and return to the Lord because he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So who knows? Maybe he will relent and turn and leave us a blessing behind. So blow a trumpet, verse 15, in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly of the people. I think that's part of the image here. With each blast of these trumpets, it's meant to convey a warning. Okay. All right, there's theme one. Theme two. Uh, going back into uh, Revelation here. So let's talk about what happens, especially with these first four uh, angels that blow their trumpets. All this destruction, right? Angel one blows his trumpet. Uh, fire and hail come down from heaven, consume a third of the trees and the earth, burn up all the dry gla- grass. Second angel blows his trumpet, uh, and the great sea is turned into blood. A third of the sea creatures die. A third of the ships are lost. Third angel blows his trumpet, star falls from heaven into all the lakes and rivers, or sorry, the the rivers and waterways, and a third of them become bitter. Fourth angel blows his trumpet, and a third of the stars and the sun and the moon go dark. So what's happening here? What's, What's the deal with all this destruction? Or what's the deal with God seemingly destroying his creation, undoing uh, his creation here? Okay, so to get at that question, I have to ask you another question. Think with me. Where have we heard in our, or where have we seen in our Bible's biblical storyline major waterways turning to blood? Or the sun going dark? Uh, or hail falling from heaven and consuming a portion of land? Where have we heard of that? We've seen this before in our biblical storyline. Yeah, the Exodus. Right, the ten plagues that God sends on the Egyptian empire. And if you're unfamiliar with your Bible and the biblical storyline, when we first come across God's people, uh, they're, not in a, they're not in good shape. They're slaves in Egypt. They're being oppressed by Pharaoh and the mighty Egyptian empire. And their cries of agony, their pleas for mercy are reaching the ears of God. And so he's coming down to their deliverance. And so he raises up Moses and says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Okay, but a couple of interesting things about those. First of all, God says to Moses a couple of times, yeah, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But here's the thing. His heart is going to be hardened. Sometimes he actually says, I'm going to harden his heart. So he's not going to let them go, which is going to give opportunity for another plague. And then you go back to Pharaoh and say, come on, let my people go. And maybe initially he'll say, okay, I'll let him go. But then his heart's going to become hardened. He's going to say, no, I'm not going to let him go, which is going to be another opportunity for another plague. Another interesting thing, if you read through those plague stories in uh, Exodus, is that seven times in that story, God says, this is happening so you may know that I am God. So you may know 
So that all my people may know, so that even all the Egyptians may know that I am the living God. The other important thing, last important thing to know about those plagues is that they weren't just random acts of destruction. But they were acts of destruction that were particularly aimed at the Egyptian gods. Right? In a way, what God is doing in those plagues, he's putting the Egyptian gods to open shame. He's publicly embarrassing them. Like, for instance, in ancient Egypt, they worshipped the god of the Nile. The Nile was, was their lifeblood, right? You flow in through the middle of the desert, right? You, you irrigate, you know, from the Nile. That's what, you know, nourishes your crops and your animals and really your whole lives. They're so dependent upon the Nile. And so they had this god of the Nile that they bowed down and they worshipped to, right? So when God turns that Nile to blood, you know, an Egyptian stands saying, okay, well, great. Now where am I going to get my word to make my coffee in the morning? So, how, how, but more than that, he might say, well, wait a minute. What just happened to the God of the Nile? Or more importantly, maybe when the sun goes dark, Egyptian might say, okay, great. I get to sleep in a little bit extra this morning until the sun decides to wake up. Or more so, he might say, wait a minute. What happened to Ra, the sun god, the most powerful, the most important god in the old pantheon of Egyptian gods, right? What happened to this god? Right? God is exposing them as fraud. Fraudulent. Right? And think about how significant, how important this was, especially for God's people whose whole lives had been lived in slavery in this massive Egyptian empire with all their gods. And all they knew about the gods was either some of these stories that had been handed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, you know, and all. But then whatever else they were seeing about the gods in Egypt. Right? And if God is calling these people to come out of Egypt, and to come serve him, and to come be his, his priests, his representatives of his glory to all the surrounding nations that are drowning in their worship of these false gods. Well, do you see how significant it is that God would expose these gods and show himself as the true living God who ultimately has power and authority over his creation and things that they look to for their life? Okay. So now come back to the book of Revelation and consider the people that book of Revelation is written to. People living in the Roman Empire with all of its glitz and glamour and power and might and with all of its myriad of gods as well too. Right? Think of the fledgling little Christian church where everywhere they look, they see the power and the might and the glamour of Rome. And in every town they go to, they see all these little temples and shrines that are built to these patron gods and goddesses who supposedly fund or provide for all this glamorous, powerful life of Rome. Maybe. This ancient church, especially when persecution and hardship came, would be tempted to do what, like the Nicolaitans, remember the pesky Nicolaitans from chapters 2 and 3 were subtly encouraging the church to do, hey, it's great that you worship Jesus, but it might go even better for you if you just threw a little worship towards Apollo. Or if you threw a little worship towards Aphrodite, or you threw a little worship and you burned some incense towards the emperor. Right? This is, in a sense, what these plagues are doing. Or, sorry, what these first four trumpets are doing is the same thing that the plagues did to Egypt. They are exposing these gods that's fraudulent and conveying that the true God and that Christ, the one seated on the throne, is the one who alone has ultimate power and authority over his creation, that he is supreme 
over all these other gods that all the surrounding nations are bowing the knee to, looking to sustain their life. That he alone has the power to create and to give life and also to undo it and undo those things that we think are so vital for our life. Okay? You know, you imagine if, if uh, Christ was writing the book of Revelation to us, you wonder how he would write it. Maybe because, you know, and we've talked about this a lot in our culture, we've sort of, we've sort of emptied the heavens. We don't have temples and shrines up in each little city, all these patron gods and goddesses and deities out there and whatnot. We don't have little statues on your mantle place that you, you know, touch on your way out the door in the morning or say a little prayer to as you're off, your, off the way to work. But that doesn't mean that we don't worship. It doesn't mean that as a culture even, we haven't set up certain things and given to them basically div- divine godlike status, especially if we're going to define a God as anything that our heart attributes ultimate value to or anything that our heart is convinced we need for life to be meaningful and satisfying and fulfilling. Anything that we entrust our whole lives to thinking that if we have this, this is where we'll find life to the full that is satisfying, rich and meaningful. Right? Jesus was writing this letter to 21st century American suburban churches, you know, or American suburban culture. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he would, uh, I don't know, maybe he would send plagues and boils, you know, on skins like he did in, in Egypt, in Egypt times. So he would, you know, go and, and poke at our, our idols of, of beauty. Or maybe he would send hail from sky to burn up a third of our workplaces. And some of us would say, that's great. I don't have to deal with that boss anymore. But some of us might say, well, okay, well, well now where am I going to find my sense of accomplishment, of fulfillment, my status? Where am I going to find my wealth? Or maybe he would come and send a great earthquake and swallow up, you know, the Pentagon and the sources of military might and, you know, we would say, well, wait a second. Well, now where am I going to find my, my strength and my confidence and my might to protect me and my security, right? Again, what is God doing here? He's pulling back the curtain and he's exposing these gods that people are tempted to bow down and worship and submit their life to as being fraudulent. It's weak and powerless. And he being the only one who ultimately has power and authority to give life to the full. All right, so then we come to this last section here, fifth and sixth trumpet. Angel comes and blows the fifth trumpet. And out comes an angel with a key. And he goes and he unlocks the door to the great abyss, the bottomless pit. Right, which in the book of Revelation, it's kind of like the domain of the dead. It's the prison house for evil spirits, fallen angels. Uh, it's the abode of... These spiritual forces of darkness, the enemies of God that rage against him and his people, right? So this is a dark, evil place. So the angel goes, he opens up the, the door, and boom, out comes this plume of smoke. Like when you realize a half hour later, oh, shoot, I left the garlic bread under the broiler in the oven. And you go open the door to let it out, all this black smoke just comes flying out of the oven, right? It's that same thing. He opens up the door to the abyss, and out comes this plume of dark smoke. And as the sky is being darkened, the sun is being darkened by all this, then all of a sudden you hear this, this dreadful noise. You hear this noise of thousands of chariots. In the ancient world, that's a dreadful sound, right? Because the chariots were these major war machines. So if you were ever in town and you heard the sound of a thousand chariots coming up over the hill for your town, you, that was not a, good, a pleasant thing to hear. This is a dreadful sound. 
hears that sound of these thousand chariots, and you realize all of a sudden that actually it's not chariots, but these are the wings of these hideous locusts. They're flapping as they're filling up the smoke. These monstrous locusts that have the horses of heads, sorry, the heads of horses by these old, these big Roman war horses, these beasts that are trained to, to fight and to bite and devour. They've got these victor's crowns of gold on top. They've got a breastplate of bronze. They've got faces, interestingly enough, these evil creatures have faces of humans. And they've got this tail of a scorpion. And when it stabs and pokes, it torments. And it's doing this, it's tormenting people for, for five months. It maybe is the average lifespan of a locust. I'm not sure back then. I don't know what. But it's just for a period of time, right? For five months, these hideous, monstrous locusts are giving, giving permission to torment and torture such that people long to die and yet they can't. Right? Pretty grotesque. Oh, and then uh, one important, other important thing about these locusts is that we're told that their king is the angel of the bottomless pit. Right, the one who in Hebrew is called Apollon, or in the Greek is Apollyon, which basically means destroyer. And if we had time, we could get into all sorts of interesting speculation about who this character Apollyon is. We don't need to do that. What you just need to see is the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name means destroyer. Right, so this is not a good character. This is an evil character. These, which is intended to say that these locusts are evil, shady, destructive creatures, unleashing their Hell, quite literally. All right, so then the sixth angel comes. And we go from grotesque now to morbid. And we're told that these other four angels who are bound or are in, ch- in chains along the river Euphrates, which is probably another indication that these aren't uh, good, nice, pleasant uh, guardian angels, but these are more shady, wicked angels who are being unleashed. Gather their army, thousands upon thousands, twice times, 10,000 upon 10,000 soldiers who are on these, again, these horses, those heads look like lions, and they've got these shields of flaming fire. And here's the thing, out of their mouth is coming fire and sulfur and smoke. Which, by the way, in the book of Revelation, is all stuff that comes out of this bottomless pit, or this domain of evil and darkness. Right, And this fire and the smoke and the sulfur, it is consuming and destroying a third of mankind. Okay, so think with me now. What's going on here in these fifth and sixth trumpets? Well, again, we haven't entirely left the story of Egypt and the plagues yet. Right? You go back to those plagues, you got locusts. You got death, right? Killing of the firstborn, right? So this is very symbolic, similar to the whole Egyptian plague. And again, if the Egyptian plagues were in some way to kind of like unmask these empty worthless gods or to expose these worthless gods, what's happening here in trumpet five and six? Okay, we're being showed here that these gods that were worthless and empty, yeah, are also tools that these spiritual forces of darkness that emanate from the abyss, are using, not just to draw you away from relationship with your creator, but actually to consume and torment and destroy you. 
Right? In other words, the curtain is being drawn back here in such a way that you see, okay, so to flirt with these other gods and to bow down and worship to these idols and this idol and this god and this goddess is also to flirt with these powers of darkness that emanate from this, this abyss that has as its aim to draw you away from your creator, to consume you, to torment you, to destroy you, ultimately. That's actually similar to what the Apostle Paul warns the Corinthian church about in like 1 Corinthians 10, where he warns them against participating in idolatry, and he warns them against going to these feasts and these celebrations where people are making sacrifices to their pagan idols, and then they're sitting around at a table together, and they're enjoying the food that was just sacrificed to the idols. He says, brothers and sisters, I tell you, don't go be a part of this, because when you do that, look, what they're sacrificing to these idols, they're sacrificing to demons. And to participate in this feast and this celebration is to participate with demons. And he goes on to say, you know, think about what happens when we come to the Lord's table and we take the bread and the cup. Are we not in some mystical way participating with Christ by his spirit? He's saying there's something that's similar that's going on there. When you go to these pagan celebrations where they're sacrificing stuff to their idols and you're eating around the table, the food that was sacrificed, there's a participation there with demons and he warns them against that. And that's the picture here, right? Plagues one through four, or trumpets one through four, exposing these gods as weak and fraudulent. Plagues five and six, exposing these gods as tools in the hands of demons to torment and destroy and to pull you away from life. Tuck that away, because that's going to show up a, lot, a bit more throughout the book. But... Here's the climax, well, not the climax, but here's why I wanted to read this whole thing, because of how this chapter closes. All right, in light of all that, in light of these seven trumpets of warning that are drawing back the curtain on life and showing the deeper realities of these gods that we bow down to and worship, notice what happens to the rest of the people who aren't destroyed. The rest of mankind, verse 20, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts, right? All these things that they're doing in service to these false gods. Right? Do you see that? Do you see like the, how this, these, these two chapters ultimately are conveying this desperate sickness of the human condition that we have this propensity to bow the knee and to give our lives in worship and service to empty, worthless idols. That at the end, and we have this propensity to give our lives in service and worship and love of these idols that at the end of the day aim at our torment and destruction. And even though these things are being exposed, and even though God is pulling back the curtain, and even though God is proving himself and his power and his sufficiency for life, yet the sickness in the human heart leads us to continue bowing the knee to these false gods that can't see, that can't talk, that can't hear, that can't listen, and are the tools of demons to, to oppress and destroy. There's the picture. There's a message of hope that's coming uh, next week. So stay tuned for that. And the church has an important role to play in that, which we're going to see next week. So stay tuned. But real quick, just what do we do with this? 
in the last couple minutes here. Or how do we respond to this stunning picture, this image that is given to us? And I would say, first of all, if you're here and you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself a Christian, or maybe you're just exploring or you're curious about who God is, and maybe up until this point in life you've been curious about God, but you haven't really considered what it means to know him or give your life in service to him, be a part of his church community, and whatever. What I would say to you is to heed the warning here. Right? See the picture that is that God is, is wanting to present to you. That, first of all, it, it's, it's a misnomer to think that, well, just because you don't worship the living God means you're not a worshiper. No, we're all worshipers. We're all, we're worshipers by design. And it is the case that we will bow the knee to something because we will find something that we are convinced is what's going to supply us life to the full. And is going to make our life meaningful and satisfying and fulfilling. So we will bow the knee to that. And here's the warning that these things are worthless at best. At worst, they aim at your destruction. That was David Foster Wallace, uh, who's, I think I've quoted him a couple times here. He's self-proclaimed agnostic, certainly not a Christian writer by any way, any stretch of the imagination. But he was giving a speech, a graduation speech at Kenyon University. I forget the year of this. Uh... And he says this, um, he says, actually, a good reason to worship Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or Mother Goddess of Earth, you know, whatever it is, because to worship anything else, it will eat you alive. He said, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. He's saying this to a bunch of graduates. He says, never... Um, if you worship your own body and beauty and sexual lure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they plant you in the ground. He says, on one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, and the like. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship. Oh, sorry. Uh, anyway, well, I'll keep going. He says, worship power. And you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll never ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And there he says, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. David Foster Wallace, we're all worshipers. <laughs> and if you're not careful, these things will eat you alive. David Wallace, Foster Wallace, he's actually a sad testimony to that. To my knowledge, he never, never hated his own warning, never considered what it would be like to give his life and surrender to Jesus Christ. He suffered with depression all of his life, and I think he died in 2008 of suicide at the end of, it, the, end of the day. It literally consumed him and ate him alive and destroyed him. So heed that warning. And maybe also heed the warning as well, too, that the book, rest of the book of Revelation would give, that though God is patient and merciful such that he would give warnings like this, pictures of warnings, trumpets blasting, to gather your attention and to show you this warning. The day will come when that patience will run out and that mercy will run out. And as God is renewing his creation and judging the earth and purifying it and cleansing it from all that is not right, when that mercy and that judgment and that patience runs out, he will, if you persist in your resolve to forsake him and instead worship these false gods, then he will hand you over to that which you desire most. 
And he will hand you over to that which you have spent your life loving and worshiping and serving. And it will be to your destruction. So heed the warning. So those of you who haven't trusted your life to Christ, the one thing I want to say to you is that you're, you're in good hands. I don't know if you picked it up in the passage, but these hideous locusts and these angels, they don't have power to torment and ultimately destroy those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, which we saw from a couple chapters ago. Right? Those who've entrusted their lives, handed their lives over to Christ, the king on the throne, and the ones who have his mark on them, the one whom he has sealed and he has claimed and he has promised to keep and to guard. Right? If you've entrusted your life to Christ, you're in good hands because he will keep you to the very end despite all hell raging all around you. Praise the Lord. And yet, uh, the, the picture here is one that, that we can take and see. It's one that still is delivered to the church and we do well to see. And we, Basically, it's a picture that we do well to see the miserable condition the miserable sickness of life lived in service and worship to these empty false gods. And so just as the Israelites were called to come out entirely of Egypt and leave behind those false gods, and just as God's people, his church, the ecclesia was literally called out to come out of Rome in the secular environment with all those pagan gods, so too you, the church of Christ, are called daily to come out the surrounding culture and all the gods they look to for life and resubmit yourself and re-entrust yourself to the true king on the throne. And the last thing I'll just say is this. Hopefully what comes through also in this passage as you're seeing the torment that all these false gods unleash on people, hopefully what comes through clearly is just so how much greater Jesus Christ is. Right? As David Foster Wallace says, any other God that you submit your life to, it will eat you alive. If you worship beauty and sexual allure or whatever, you'll never feel beautiful enough. If you worship power and wealth or money, you'll never have enough of that. And if you ever fail those gods or if you ever fail to attain those gods or live up to its standards or perform in the way that those gods demand, they'll crush you. Right, But when we have failed and sinned and rebelled and resisted, Jesus, what has he done for us? He's taken that sin upon himself. And he's was hanging on the cross. He says, cries out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they don't, they don't know what they're doing. Right? In other words, when we fail this God, this king, in this wild love, in this greater love for his people, yet he stretches out his arms and he suffers the weight of their sin, the weight of their shame. He bears their burdens he bears their guilts he's crushed for our iniquities so that we wouldn't have to be crushed so we could be forgiven so we could be restored so we could be given all the rights and privileges of god's eternal family which includes this wonderful hope of new creation that this great book is aiming towards so hopefully what comes through is that not only are these gods worthless and fraudulent and tools in the hands of the evil ones who would seek to destroy but in comparison to that jesus is so much greater his love and his mercy, his compassion and his faithfulness is so much greater. And so may we heed the warning. Stay as far away 